Good morning. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 4 in your Bibles. And if you've got one of our Bibles, it is on page 495. If you don't have a Bible or you need a new Bible, please take one of ours with you. This is our gift to you. If you're a visitor today, my name is Nate, one of the pastors here, and I get to teach God's Word today. Really excited about that. And so I would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles. Uh, this week has been really encouraging. As a pastor, uh, seeing our church as active as we've been this week is just exciting for me. Uh, we've had, I think, all three of our missional communities were serving in some capacity this week. Uh, Tuesday night, we had 10 pastors or potential pastors come and get trained on how to preach from our association. Wednesday, we had the Mark 12 community meal, and there's a ton of people here this Wednesday that we served, and we served alongside another church in our association, Eagle Heights, and our missional community was part of that, and so that was really exciting. Uh, Friday night, there's another missional community that got together, and they are preparing to, for their, their Mother's Night Out ministry that they're getting ready for, and so they did a test run with that this Friday. And then yesterday, we had about a dozen people come and just work on the, on the building, and uh, pretty much wrapped up most of the roof stuff at this point, which is exciting <laughs> for sure, and got a room painted and uh, various other random things around the church, and so very thankful to see what God is, is doing in here. And, and this is my encouragement. This is why I say all of this. I'm not bragging about what our church is doing. I want you to, to pray that acti activity by itself does nothing. I've seen churches extremely active, but lives are not being transformed. And this is what this whole series is about, and this is what Dave prayed for. I appreciate that prayer because you said that it's, nothing in us is going to change us. It's got to be God's Spirit inside of us. And so I would challenge you and encourage you as we are being active like weeks like this, that we're praying that God would use the activity to transform people's hearts, to open up uh, the eyes of their hearts so that if they don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, they would come to know Him and have a relationship with Him. And so this series, which we're wrapping up today, has, all, has been about the nuts and bolts of uh, how we change. And we all have stuff. If we're honest, there's stuff in our life that we wish were different. We don't like to admit that, especially if you're a guy, you don't like to admit that, right? But there, there's, maybe it's an addiction that you're dealing with. Maybe it's just a, an anger issue that you're dealing with. Maybe it's anxiety and you just constantly feel overwhelmed. Or maybe it's that you're just apathetic and you don't care about other people as much as you would like to. Or maybe it's that you're just a workaholic or you're focused way too much on, on a good thing, but you've made it a, an ultimate thing. All of us have things in our lives that we want to change. And just like there's a million different ways to diet out there, like if you're trying to lose weight, there's a million different diets out there, right? Maybe some of you have tried like all of them. Well, if, if you've had a basic psychology class, you know that there's a million different theories out there about how we change. And so our focus over the last several weeks has been on, okay, what does the Bible, we want to see what God has to say and God's word and his wisdom is when it comes to us changing. And I hope that if you've been here, you've gotten a glimpse of that. I hope that you've seen that the Bible gives a really comprehensive understanding about how lasting and true change happens in your life. We've seen that it's possible, and we should have great hope that change is possible in our life because of what we saw in 2 Peter 1. 
that God in his power has given us everything we need to live a life of godliness. We've seen that change is possible because we have an intimate relationship with him. Romans 8 talks about that the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, if you are in Christ, now lives inside of you and is changing you from the inside out. We're married to Christ, and because we have an intimate relationship with him, change is very possible. And not only that, he's given us an amazing tool for change. He's given us our church family, which is like the soil by which we grow and we change in. Community is the context of change. And so over the last few weeks, we've been dissecting this diagram. We're going to put up on the screen here. And in this diagram, this is a metaphor that we see in a number of places in Scripture. This is in your bulletin, too. If you can't see it up here, you can look closely at your bulletin. But this is a metaphor that we see in a number of places in Scripture. And we talked about the heat, which is our situation. Uh, Sometimes God turns up the heat, and he gives us trials, and we learn through those trials, and he teaches us, and he humbles us, and sometimes he lovingly disciplines us. But there's always a response to the heat, right? There's always either a godly response that is full of fruit or there's an ungodly response which was represented by the thorn tree. But notice that the the ultimate cause of the fruitful tree or the thorny tree is not the situation, it's not the heat. The ultimate cause, the root cause is our hearts. And that's been the thrust of this sermon series is, okay, how do we examine our hearts? How do we see inside of our hearts what's going on there? And we talked a lot about idols uh, the, the, the things in our life that capture our heart other than God, that we end up worshiping because we're wired for worship. God, God's wired us that we're going to worship something. If we're not worshiping him, we're going to worship something. And often it's good things that we make ultimate things. And so we need to be able to look inside of our hearts, see what those idols are, turn away from the idols and towards Christ. And when we begin to do that, we rest in our new identity in Christ and fruit starts to be produced, which is what we're going to be talking about Today, godly fruit. And so let me encourage you as we start today to not simply stop at knowing the process. Okay, we've been examining this process for a while now, and the temptation, I think, is often, okay, let's learn how to examine our hearts, but we just kind of stop there. And that's kind of like if you would take your, so my, our, our old van, the, the Toyota is, I think, got a thermostat issue right now. And so I've got an appointment uh, tomorrow to take it to the, the mechanic. And so what if I took it to the mechanic, they hook it up to their diagnostic tool, and they determine, yep, it's got a, a thermostat issue, but they just hand me a bill and said, you're done. I mean, that's kind of like what it would be like if you just, you know the process, but you don't see any kind of fruit. True and lasting change always produces godly fruit. And so we've been learning that godly fruit is, it's not just about trying really hard to follow the rules, right? Godly fruit springs out of a heart that's been transformed by Christ. And so a Christian is not simply somebody who follows the rules that are in the Bible. A Christian is someone whose life has been invaded by the holy love of God, been captivated by that love, and we're given a new heart. And out of that heart, obedience comes. The, the, the How People Change book that we're going through in our small groups and our missional communities has a really good illustration to, to make this point. Uh, it talks about this, like imagine that if there's the, the single woman who gets a new job in a big company and she goes in the first day 
and she notices down the hall there's this office door, and beside the office door is a bulletin board, and she notices that that office board is her boss's office, and that bulletin board has all the rules and regulations that they're supposed to follow as employees. And can you imagine if that was your first impression of your new job and your new boss? It's all about the rules, right? I can imagine she might have a little bit of fear, a little bit of awe uh, of her boss and, and, and the rules, and she would look at those rules, and they would be fairly cold, and, and she might follow them. She might have a little distaste for them, but she doesn't want to get fired, and so she, she fears the rules. She fears her boss. But then imagine this, that she finds out that, well, her boss is single, and I, this illustration breaks down a little bit because this is a very inappropriate thing to do in a workplace. But imagine the single woman finds that her boss is single. They strike up a conversation. They end up falling in love, and eventually they get married. Okay, and this uh, this picture. And so over time, what she realizes, though, is that her perception of those rules and that bulletin board start to change because her heart towards her boss or her husband now changes. And to the degree with which her heart changes towards her husband, to the degree that those looking at that bulletin board change. And so instead of looking at, at that bulletin board as just a bunch of rules and regulations that need to be followed because of high performance is, is what's desired, she now looks at those rules and those regulations as, a, as a, a loving guide for somebody who cares for her. Now what's changed? It's not the rules. The rules haven't changed, but her heart towards the rule maker has changed. And so in the Christian life, what happens is that our heart transforms because our, our understanding of God and our, and our relationship with Him changes. And so the outward fruit doesn't grow out of us trying really hard to obey God because we, we fear Him. And there's a, a, a reverence fear that we ought to have towards God. But our obedience ultimately flows out of a heart that's been captivated by the love of God. And so throughout Scripture, we see this. We see that God focuses on the heart, right? And this morning in cross-training, we talked about Proverbs 4.23. Guard your heart, they've said, because that's where springs of living water come out of it. Uh, you, you notice in 1 Samuel 16. So Samuel has been commissioned to anoint the next king of Israel. And he's sent to Jesse's house. And at Jesse's house, he's presented... Uh, several sons, and he sees the oldest son, Eliab, and he thinks, okay, this guy looks like a king. He's tall, he's handsome, but this is what God says to Samuel. He says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as a man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the what? The heart. And so David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, he wasn't even presented as a possible possibility at first, and yet David would be known as a man after God's own heart. We come to the prophets, and Ezekiel talks about this new covenant that's coming. When, and so when Christ came, he initiated this new covenant, and he, Ezekiel says this about the new covenant. He says, I will, this is God speaking through Ezekiel. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be cleansed from all your uncleanness. Sorry about that cannot talk today, uncleanliness, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And then he says this, 
He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so we're promised this new heart with with this new covenant. And so Jesus, when he preached, he spoke a lot about the heart in the Sermon on the Mount. He starts with the Beatitudes. He says, those with a pure heart will see God. He goes on to talk about if you lust in your heart, it's a sin because, because you're lusting in your heart. You're committing adultery in your heart. If you are angry with somebody, that's a sin because you're committing murder in your heart. It says, lay up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Paul, likewise, in Ephesians 1, he prays that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you are called, what is the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. The heart is mentioned over 900 times in Scripture because God is in the business of transforming hearts. We could go on and on and show Scripture after Scripture about how God is in the business of heart transplants. He's giving us a new heart. And so Psalm chapter 4 is a great example of what it looks like when your heart's been transformed by God. Uh, David is in the midst of a significant crisis in his life, and and David knew suffering. Uh, David's introduced in the Bible as the forgotten shepherd boy. And he's anointed as king, but that doesn't make his life easier. He has to fight a giant. He ends up being chased around by Saul for his life because Saul, the current king of Israel, looks at him as a threat. Once he is king, he is known as a man after God's own heart, but he's not perfect by any means. In fact, it's ironic that his biggest failure, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and ended up trying to cover it up by having Bathsheba's husband murdered on the battlefield. That happened in a, in a moment where it wasn't trials. It was in a moment of peace. Uh, it was, everything was going well for him. And so his ungodly, his thorny response happened not during a trial, but during a blessing. Well, he ends up committing adultery, and that sin had a consequence that ended up affecting the rest of his life. And this passage in Psalm chapter 4 was written many years later at a a darker time in David's life. It's when his son Absalom had not just rebelled against him, but he actually wanted to, to take his throne. He had started a coup. He had gathered his own troops up, and he had marched into Jerusalem to take the palace. And David, instead of fighting his own son, decides, okay, I'm going to Take a band of brothers with me, and we're going to flee and hide in the wilderness. And it's in the midst of this exile that David writes this psalm as he's hiding. Maybe he's in a a cave hiding from his own son. He writes this. And so I want to pray, and then we're going to walk through this passage together. Father, as we look into this passage, I, I plead with you that you would... Help us to see what you desire to do in us. That we would understand this passage fully and we would see your glory in it. We would see you doing amazing change and transformation in David's heart. And we plead with you that that same change would 
happen in our hearts through your spirit. And we would produce the same fruit that David produces even in the midst of this crisis. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we walk through this passage, I'm going to read the whole thing and then we're going to walk through it line by line. I want you to really pay attention to what fruit is produced in the middle of that terrible crisis. His son is trying to kill him. This is what he writes while he's hiding from his son. He cries out to God, Answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lay, lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so again, as we walk through this psalm, look at the godly fruit that God produces in the life of David through his spirit. He starts off by saying, Answer me when I call, O God of righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Notice David in the midst of this crisis, he runs towards God. If you're taking notes, that's number one. He runs, David runs towards God. He doesn't run away from God in the midst of the trial. He runs towards God. He doesn't question God's faithfulness. He doesn't become bitter or hopeless. He remembers God's faithfulness towards him. He says, you have already given me relief. Literally, that means you have made space for me. You get the sense of, like, I can breathe again because your presence is with me. Uh, if you're reading the NIV, in that translation, he's praying for relief. But I don't think that's the right translation for this text. I think the ESV nails it. David, in the midst of this crisis, feels God's presence, and that gives him relief and from the pain that he's feeling from the treason that his son has committed. In the midst of a trial, it's tempting to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to doubt his, his love towards us. But David turns towards God. He recognizes that the greatest resource that we have in the midst of our greatest trials is prayer. Let me say that again. The greatest resource that we have in the midst of our greatest trials is prayer. Be gracious to me, he says. Be merciful to me. Hear my prayer. Let me ask you a question. What, what's your default response? When you are in the midst of crisis, what's your default response? Do you run towards God or you, do you run away from God? Do you get angry and, and bitter? Do you question God's love for you or do you turn God, towards God and pray 
and ask for mercy and grace. A fruitful life produces, God produces fruit. One of the fruit is that we run towards him in the midst of crisis. Look at verse 2. He goes on. He says, Oh men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Now, I don't think David here is playing the victim card. Okay, that is not fruitful. What David here is doing, number two, is David is honest with others. Often the temptation when we're going through trials is just to hide it. But David is, if you read the rest of the Psalms, you recognize David is just very transparent with others and with God. And so he doesn't hide his pain. He speaks, and I think he's speaking truth also to his son and all those who have followed Absalom and committed treason against God's chosen king. He's reminding them, look, the, the choices that you are making are dangerous. How long will you act in a foolish way. Then he goes on in verse 3. He says, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And so David is lovingly warning his son that his plans of this coup will not succeed. Number three is David remembers who he is in God's eyes. He remembers who he is in God's eyes. Your identity, who you, how you look at yourself, it shapes your response to life. And while David doesn't fully understand why God has him in this trial, he trusts God's character. And so he cries out to God in the midst of it. He knows deep down in the core of his own being that, look, I am his and he is mine and he will hear me when I cry out to him. Listen to me, if you are in Christ, Jesus says this about you. He says, I am, I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you are in Christ, you're his sheep. You're precious to him. You've been adopted as his child and he hears your cries. He will never leave you or forsake you. He has you in his hand. And so don't listen to Satan's lies. That's one of Satan's biggest lies. When you go through trials, Satan lies to you and says, God doesn't care. And that there couldn't be anything further from the truth. Read God's word. Know and trust Christ's word. He will never leave you or forsake you. Look at verse 4. David says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And so in the midst of trouble, David has learned to examine his own heart. David examines his own heart. This isn't natural for us to do. Often when we go through trials, what are we doing? We're making excuses for our bad behavior. We're, we're, uh, we're rehashing the person who has sinned against us. We're rehashing their sin over and over and over. We're growing in bitterness, but David doesn't do that. David doesn't make excuses. He doesn't justify a bad attitude. He doesn't dwell on his son's sin. He examines his own heart, and he encourages those that are with him to do the same. 
He recognizes that in our trials, our hearts are actually exposed, that the trials show our true character. And so he says, guard yourself from sinful anger. Don't let anger control you, in other words. Be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, as James said. And instead, look at verse 5. He says, offer right sacrifices. Put your trust in the Lord. And so number five is that David worships. David worships. In the midst of the trial, he worships. When we're overwhelmed with life, it's easy for us to draw back, draw away from God, draw away from worship. But David doesn't do that. In the midst of his trial, he doesn't allow that to derail his worship. He doesn't get stuck in self-pity. He trusts the Lord. One of the most encouraging things as a pastor to see is when I see somebody that comes in on a Sunday morning to worship, and I know that they have been through a significant crisis in their life recently. They've gotten a cancer diagnosis, or their, their son is a, a prodigal and is running away, or they've been through sickness themselves, and they're, they're just struggling, but they recognize in that moment, it is not good for me to, to close up and just be by myself. But what I need in that moment most is to be with God and be with God's family. I need the support of my church family. That is so encouraging as a pastor when I see people, that, that fruit coming out of their heart, that they trust God enough, that they realize, even in the midst of their trials, they need to worship because they recognize that what worship does, it changes our heart. It, it recalibrates our heart back towards God. And so learn to press in. And worship, we need to learn this. We need to learn that worship is not simply this emotional high that we're trying to experience on a Sunday morning. Often, worship is you coming in and crying out to God, I need help. Or worship sometimes is just you coming in and recognizing God reorienting your heart and you recognizing that you need to change and you repenting. That's worship. Worship sometimes is just being honest with God and saying, I'm hurting and I need you. And so he doesn't run away from God. He worships God. Number, uh, verse 6, he says, There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. And so David, in the midst of this trial, he cares for the hurting. He cares for the hurting. He recognizes that he's not the only one hurting in this situation. There's a whole group of men that have come with him that are hiding from Absalom. And he recognizes, okay, they are hurting also. And he recognizes that they need care. He doesn't loathe in his own self-pity. He doesn't get impatient with them either. He doesn't judge them for their lack of faith or commitment. He doesn't go off on them and then withdraw into the cave by himself. He serves them by praying for them. He prays that God would shine his glorious light on them. He, in other words, he prays that they would experience and they would feel God's presence in this moment. That's a prayer we ought to be praying for one another often, especially when we see other people going through trials. We would pray that God's presence would be felt by them and they would be comforted in the, mid comforted in the middle of it. The gospel empowers you to minister to others even in the midst of your own trials. I mean, think about Jesus on the cross. Uh, he's praying that those who are crucifying would be forgiven because they know not 
what they do. That's what the gospel, that's the power of the gospel in us. Verse 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. So number six, David rejoices. Even in the midst of the pain and the suffering, David, he's not fake about this. He doesn't just put on a, a smile and fake it. But he genuinely feels joy in his heart that's better than even if all the circumstances in life were perfect. Why? Because he's placed his trust in the Lord. David knows God's love intimately. He's got an intimate relationship with God. He's a man after God's own heart. And this allows him to rest. Look at verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. And you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so finally David rests. Certainly David is grieving. He didn't know for sure how things are going to turn out with his son. Yet amazingly, he's able to sleep and have peace. It's because David's heart's been captivated by the Lord. Even if he lost everything, he would not lose what's most important to him, his relationship with God. The Lord has not forsaken him in the midst. And David knows that he is just as secure sleeping in the wilderness as he would be in the palace. And so he's able to lie down. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love this psalm because it's just such a great example of what a transformed heart looks like. But listen, I don't want you to read this psalm and think, okay, this is what I should be like, but I'm just not. Okay, that's the temptation to, okay, the goal is not to guilt you into change. Okay, guilt is not the best way that God changes us. It's through his kindness that we are, are changed and so I want you to, this is what I want you to think as you read through this psalm and meditate on it. Think this, it's awesome that God is doing this in my heart too. If you're in Christ, this is what God is transforming you into because David's Redeemer is your Redeemer. The God who ruled David's heart and gave him peace in the midst of trial is in your heart as well. David is not simply a man who mechanically obeyed the rules. He is a man whose heart was captured by God. And out of that flowed living water, fruit. Think about it. If all we had to do is to change, is to follow biblical principles and follow the rules, Jesus Christ would have never had to die on the cross. We could have found our own righteousness on ourselves or by ourselves. But Christ died to transform your heart. The same grace that David experienced is available to you because of Christ's work on the cross. He died in your place, offering forgiveness. And Jesus says this. I love this verse. He says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, out of his heart 
will flow rivers of living water. And he's talking about the Spirit there. He's saying that, look, if you trust in me, my Spirit will be in you, and you will be like that tree planted by the rivers, and there will come out of your heart beautiful and wonderful fruit that will change the world. And that's my, that's my heart and my prayer for our church, that we would be a church that is so excited about what God is doing in our heart, it would overflow out of us. And, and I'm excited where God has us right now, but you know what? I think we've barely scratched the surface of what God can do in us and through us because of the gospel. And so I would challenge you to continue to, to run after Christ, to, to lean into your church community, to examine your own hearts and know the idols that you're dealing with so you can turn from them towards Christ and then trust in the power of God. Depend on him to change you. I, this is my prayer for our church, that we would strive to see Colossians 1, 28 and 29 be true of us. Paul says that him, he says, of Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The heart of this sermon series has been to really expose you to God's plan for us to change, to, to expose you to, really what this is, is it's hardcore discipleship. This is the pattern that we see throughout Scripture of how we can disciple one another, how we can help speak the truth and love to one another as we point one another to the gospel, as we point to one another to look at your own heart, see where idols lie, and then trust that Christ is going to change you. And I believe the, the, the more we dig into that, the more we press into that, the more change we're going to see in our own heart and the more impact we're going to have on our community. And so would you pray with me that God would help us with that? Father, again, we, we recognize that change is impossible apart from the Spirit of God, your Spirit working in us and through us, and so I plead with you, Lord, that even now as we move into a time of communion and to a time of, of praising you through song, I pray that our hearts would be recalibrated towards you, that we would, uh, all the distractions of this world would disappear for a moment and we would focus fully on you and what you've done for us on the cross. And that would transform our hearts. And we would see fruit in our hearts because of that. For your glory, not ours. In Jesus' name, amen.